6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Monarchy of Israel. Well, we are entering hour seven of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, and we're gonna attempt to cover in one hour what I'll call the monarchy. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. These, this is the core, in a sense, of the historical books. I want to remind you that our whole review of the Bible is based on exploiting two discoveries. The first is that the Bible is an integrated message. These 66 books penned by over 40 guys over a period of virtually 2,000 years is an integrated message, meaning that Every detail there is by design. And if, once you discover that, of course, you come to another discovery, and that is you can demonstrate that the origin of this very carefully crafted message is from outside our dimension of space and time. Once you discover that for yourself, it'll just change your whole perspective of what this book is really all about. The central theme, of course, is the Old Testament is the account of a nation. That's basically what it's about. The New Testament is the account of a man. The Creator became man, and His appearance in our history is the central event of all history. And He died to purchase us, and yet is alive today. And our most exalted privilege is to know Him. And that's what the Bible is all about, and that's why you're here in this review. Now, we've been going through uh, the whole panorama of history, starting with the creation, the fall of man, and so forth. We went through the book of Genesis, which took us all the way up to, but not including, the Exodus. The rest of the Old Testament, in a historical sense, goes from the Exodus to the exile, when the house of Judah finally goes into Babylonian captivity. And there are about 400 years then that are sometimes called the silent years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And the New Testament, of course, occurs all in one lifetime. What we're going to do now is we're going to focus on the monarchy, Saul, David, Solomon, and right up to the exile. The rise and fall of the monarchy. First and second Samuel, obviously Samuel is the bridge between the period of the judges and uh, the kings. We call it first and second Samuel. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, speaks of the first and second kingdoms. Instead of first and second Samuel, first and second kings, they have first, second, third, and fourth kings in a sense. And the Latin Vulgate follows that same pattern. But we, of course, will stick to the more traditional thing of First and Second Samuel, which is followed by the pair of First and Second Kings. They will include David's 40-year reign 
and then Solomon, and the tragedy of the divided kingdom, the division of the kingdom. Finally, leading to the exile, the wipeout of the northern kingdom, and the exile of the southern kingdom. First and Second Chronicles is a recap of much of that history from the point of view of the southern kingdom, from Judah. That's the, 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 the southern kingdom, of course, the one that produces David, and David is you know, in the messianic line, so it's obviously a, a primary significance here. So, the monarchy. Samuel and Saul and David, Solomon, southern two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. The southern kingdom outlasts the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom goes, gets destroyed, and the southern kingdom goes to into, into captivity. First Samuel covers Samuel and Saul. Second Samuel covers David, then Solomon will be picked up by first kings. Between first kings and second kings, we have two the prophets. In first kings, you have Elijah, very colorful character, and a more soft-spoken but equally colorful character is Elisha in second kings. But you can think, if you remember the division between first and second kings is Elijah and Elisha, that may be helpful in trying to keep your bearings here. And first and second chronicles, essentially a recap from second Samuel right on through the kings. So. Uh, we'll be trying to summarize all of these. First book of Samuel. Samuel's the last of the judges, and of course it covers his birth and his youth, his call to office, and various times and acts. That'll lead up to Saul, first of the kings. His appointment as a king, his promising beginning, and yet his later folly and sin. He started off great, but uh, not good news. When you get to the fifteenth uh, uh, chapter of First Book of Samuel, you we encounter David, who is the greatest of the kings. He's of course anointed by Samuel. He will have service before Saul. He doesn't replace Saul well, until he's Saul dies. But he's at first in service to him, and then uh, as Saul gets jealous, envious, so forth, he endures a, a, as a fugitive. Samuel. It's quite a guy, equaled only by Moses. He really ends, in a very formal sense, the period of the judges. The period of the judges is that strange time. It's actually a time of decay, tragically. One of the things that uh, Samuel also does is he heads the order of the prophets. He actually founded what they call the schools of the prophets. We don't know a lot about that. We hear it alluded to several times, but we, we don't know a lot about the details. But Samuel, of course, places Israel's first king on the throne, and uh, he later will anoint David. Many people have a misconception. They have a feeling that a king for Israel was an afterthought. Uh, the people wanted a king, and so God reluctantly gives them a king. That's not really a very proper perspective. First of all, in the, in the book of Genesis chapter 38, we saw David's genealogy already anticipated and encrypted there. And also in the book of Ruth, we have David's genealogy. The problem with Israel is they wanted a king right now. David wasn't ready. So God says, you want a king? I'll show you what a king's all about, and give him, gives him Saul, and they, they uh, later regretted it. But uh, we'd, anyway, we have David anointed. And even as a kid now, he's going to confront Goliath. Most of you know the story. But he ultimately has to flee Saul as a fugitive. There is, of course, a threat of the Philistines. 
The Philistines originally came from Egypt, went to Crete, then from Crete. They came there along the coast of Israel, and they oppressed Israel for 40 years. They were the enemies of Israel. The word Philistine in Latin is Palestine. The land, the land was named by the Caesar in order to disallow any Jewish presence in the second century. But when you use the term Palestine, what it really means is Philistine. And they were the enemies of Israel for over 40 years. Now Samson, who has a lot of colorful pranks that he plays, really just had only tactical successes. When he dies, the tribe of Dan, uh, which was responsible for that region, was not able to hold it. And they end up moving on their own initiative up into the northern part of the country. It's interesting that the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines, but for a short while. And boy, did they end up regretting it. In fact, one of the most colorful episodes in the Scripture is when the Philistines capture the ark, and every place they put it, and there's, they have five cities. In each of the cities where they had it there as a hostage, they had sickness and problems, infestations of rats that were associated with that, and they had uh, an outbreak of hemorrhoids, strangely enough. And they finally conclude, after having in each of the five cities, that they need to send it back. <laughs> and one of the most humorous, in, in 1 Samuel 4, one of the funniest chapters in the Bible, because they, when they go to send it back, the priests realize they can't just send it back without an offering. So they decide to put in the ark, sort of a, a restitution kind of thing. They put five gold mice, one, one for each of the five cities that had been plagued by all these problems. But the funny part, and it's in 1 Samuel 4, is that they uh, also put in five golden hemorrhoids. Now, I have no idea who crafted those. <laughs> I have no idea who served as a model for them. But it's there. <laughs> and they turn this loose and they find their way back, by the way, inter interestingly enough. So the ark was not a blessing to the Philistines. They ultimately are defeated under Samuel's leadership. And they do, though, they do continue as a major nemesis for Saul. The Philistines were ultimately subdued by David. One of the things that um, the people do, though, they clamor for a king. This is an example of self-determination. See, God had promised them kings from the beginning. You'll find it in Genesis 17. Uh, and Genesis 35, and as I say, you find even uh, the, the genealogy of David in Genesis 38, encrypted behind the letters. You also find it in the book of Ruth, it's explicitly laid out. But the people want a king. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8, they clamor for a king to go out before us to fight our battles. That's what they're claiming for. They want a king to help them win battles. Big mistake! Who was fighting their battles up till then? God was. The Lord was. There's some lessons here in self-determination. We're a culture that uh, encourages being self-determined, freedom of action. 
on the one hand. And yet, there's a danger of being self-determined instead of being God-led. And uh, this request that comes to Samuel came from a committee meeting, not a prayer meeting. Samuel, of course, is really upset with this clamor. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord explains it to Samuel. He says, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. This is God speaking to Samuel. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God views this as a choice they've made, that they would rather have an earthly king than a heavenly Lord. And we can stand here as spectators and be very critical. Boy, they should have known better. And yet, be careful when you look in the mirror. How many of us do the same thing? How many of us try to take charge of our lives rather than to submit it to prayer and to the Lordship of the Lord? Say, the Lord's my Savior, indeed, but is He your Lord? Big difference. Big difference. Is He really the Lord of your life? Well, David, of course, encounters Goliath. You all know the story. I assume he was on the local basketball team. He's nine feet tall. <laughs> he was not only large, his profession was combat. It's interesting, you know the story, how David is upset because the troops are terrified as this champion comes forth to settle the day, and no one will go up. And, and uh, David's there on other errands as just a child. But he says, if they'll do it, I'll go. And Saul's going to give him his armor, but David quickly realizes after training he can't, he can't handle that. It's heavier than he is. He's going to handle it his way. He was a, he's a shepherd, and he was skilled with a sling. So he crosses the brook and picks up five stones and puts it in his pocket. And you all know the story how he took a stone and nailed Goliath right between the eyes. And when he fell, he took Goliath's sword and cut off his head. The question that you can ask yourself is, why did David pick up five stones? Did he think he's going to miss? No, it turns out, when we study the Scripture, you'll discover that Goliath had four brothers. And once you realize that, you realize what David was ready off for the whole gang. And I think that's kind of fun. The other four are ultimately, several chapters later, uh, taken care of by, by then, by David's mighty men. He was from a family of five, and you'll find that in 2 Samuel 21, much later, but uh, it's there in the Scripture to dig out. I might explain, by the way, Goliath was a descendant of Anakim. He was, a he was the descendant of Nephilim. So this is a, a vestige of uh, things that were going on in the land when uh, God told Abraham that his, his descendants would return to the land of Canaan after 400 years. That gave Satan 400 years to lay down a minefield. And there are four primary tribes that are mentioned in the Scripture that were Nephilim in which Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child of these certain tribes because he's got a gene pool problem. Anyway, out of this, of course, comes the hybrids of the Anakim. They're called Nephilim also, even in Numbers 13. The Zamzuman is one of them. That's the one from whom Goliath descended. This caused public awareness of David, that there is a deliverer in Israel. 
there's a, a whole bit of rivalry that begins to emerge with Saul. And so David becomes, a, on the one hand, a deliverer and a chief of Saul's men of war. He also becomes a devoted friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. And the two of them become very, very close. In fact, one place it says their souls were knit together. They were, despite the fact that David was a rival, in effect, of his dad, still was very loyal, a good friend. So Saul's an interesting study, by the way. In fact, it's interesting to contrast Saul and David. Saul was the kind of guy you and I would want to pick. Very striking physical superiority. And initially, very modest, very forthright, very direct, very generous. You see, his early qualities, he showed a lot of promise. But in his life, as in ours, the big issue is finishing well. Finishing well. Boy, you could keep a logbook on that one. And he later, of course, Saul later declines. He, be, he, he gets uh, fraught with irreverent presumption. Uh, he was a Benjamite from Gibeah. He, he in fact, uh, sets his capital there. Remember, remember the Benjamites were the group that closed the book of Judges with all those uh, 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 almost wiped out by the other tribes. Saul was very impatient, anyway, as a king. The Philistines were arrayed against Israel, and he was supposed to wait for Samuel at Gilgal. But he ends up violating the priest's prerogative and offering prearranged sacrifices to the Lord. He wasn't supposed to do that. He intrudes on the priest's office. Big mistake. Then he finally calls the priest for guidance, rushes off, and so forth. Very impatient character. He was supposed to wipe out the Agagites. He fails to do that. When Samuel finds that out, he's really upset. One, if he had wiped out the Agagites as God had told him to, which he didn't, you would not have had Haman in the book of Esther. Haman was a descendant of Agag. Very interesting, by the way, you're going to see a little later, David has, there's a guy, Shimei, that is harassing David. And his troops want to wipe him out because he's throwing stones and yelling curses. And David won't let him do it. David's feeling if God called him to curse, let him curse. Leave him alone. Because David spared Shimei, a descendant of him was a guy by the name of Mordecai. So when you study the book of Esther, as we will, but the point I want you to pick it up then, but the two protagonists there, the one that's the bad guy, shouldn't have been alive if Saul had done what he's supposed to. Mordecai wouldn't have been alive if David hadn't spared Shimei. Kind of interesting. There's a whole thing going on. Saul's decline, of course, irreverent presumption, willful impatience, and of course his disobedience, deceit, and failure to destroy the Amalekites. Big deal. He was supposed to do that. Samuel told him to. God told him to. He didn't do it. When Samuel finds out, he's really upset. Samuel finally does kill the king of Agag. But apparently there's a line because Haman descends from that. But then we have a very peculiar episode that uh, sh should come to mind every time you have, every year at Halloween. You know, Christians are always sort of at a quandary what to do about Halloween. I love what Pat Patriciana, President Jeremiah Film, said one time. He says, asking a Christian to celebrate Halloween is like asking a Holocaust survivor to celebrate Hitler's birthday. We do always have a problem around that season because the kids want to do something. 
and yet we're not trying to encourage the witchcraft. I'm very intrigued that in the state of Washington, one of the school districts there canceled Halloween because it was unfair to the witches to promote such a stereotype of Wicca and so forth. Boy, I can think of a lot of reasons to cancel Halloween, but that takes the cake. But in any case, <laughs> one of the things that gets our attention, of course, is the strange issue of the Witch of Endor. And one of the suggestions I'm going to make is that it could make a very interesting play for high schoolers or teenagers to put on, because you've got the text in the Bible. We had a contest many years ago of who could write the best play that was biblically accurate and you know, attractive as a piece of entertainment and so forth. And uh, we had Frank Peretti and a number of others uh, judge the entrance, and we took the top four, and they're available from our office for the asking for those that want to take on a project like this. But in any case, the Witch at Endor, a very strange event, because um, it's all in desperation, to, because you can't get hold of Sam. Samuel's passed away, and he's so used to having someone to talk to. He needs to talk to Samuel. And so even though Saul has made witchcraft illegal, wiped them all out, he knows there's someone, there's still an underground, and he gets his men to, they know there's a witch, apparently a medium down at Endor. So he goes, he goes in disguise down there. And when Samuel comes up, she's shook. So what's going on isn't what she's used to. People argue, well, who was it really? Uh, I believe it really was Samuel. And it's interesting that Saul doesn't see Samuel he only hears it. Because Samuel says before he dies, when he, when he upset with Saul about Agag, he says, You'll, you will see me no more. And if you read the text carefully, I believe he just, he hears. Samuel comes up, but the, he hears him. He doesn't really see him. In any case, the witch, of course, is shook because she, then she realizes something's going on. She suddenly realizes that he's the king and so forth. But Samuel predicts to Saul that tomorrow you'll be with me. It's a very, very spooky scene. Many people argue about the details, but uh, it makes a very, very interesting uh, thing to dramatize, particularly around uh, Halloween, sort of the spirit of the, this, the time. But let's go back to the, the monarchy. Uh, Samuel and Saul, of course, is first Samuel. Uh, David in the second Samuel. And so in the second book of Samuel, d starts to talk about David and his triumphs. He is picked as the king of Judah. When, you see, when Saul's dead, uh, the 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 the, the, the the time is open. He's actually been anointed by Samuel long before. But, and David had several opportunities to kill Saul. He would not, because he's still God's anointed as far as David's concerned. And it's a very colorful event when uh, Saul happens to be sleeping in a cave and didn't know that that was the cave that David was hiding in. And David, while he was sleeping, cut off the hem of his garment. The next day from the top of the hill, he shows that he could have. Saul's pretty shook. Why the hem of the garment? Because the hem is where all the authority is. So we have authority on the, on the a sleeve, typically on a military or on the shoulder or something. In those in ancient Israel, it was on the hem. The hem had the genealogy, had the authority, etc. That's why he cut the hem off. He cut, it, cut off his... In fact, he later, uh, even David repented of doing that. That's why the, the woman of the issue of blood wanted to touch Jesus, the hem of his garment. The hem was where the, in the sense of the authority. Anyway, whole study about hymns you can undertake. But at Hebron, he's picked as the king of Judah. That's just the tribal picture so far. He rules at, for seven years as, as the head of Judah. At Jerusalem, he will be picked also the king of the whole nation, king of all Israel. His identity with Judah never goes away, of course. In fact, later on with the civil war, the northern tribes take the, a different 
pact with Ephraim as the spokesman for the north. But anyway, he's at this point, uh, David is the king of all of Israel. He reigns that way for 13 years. But he has troubles in his family and in the nation. And the last part of the second book of Samuel details all this. And obviously, uh, he's accepted by the king over all Israel because of the human kinship. We are bone and, and uh, of thy bone. We are of thy bone and thy flesh. He also is picked because of his proven merit. Thou ledest out and broughtest in all Israel. These are all the accolades they're giving him when they pick him as to head up the whole thing. Also, he's a divine warrant. The Lord said unto thee, Thou shalt be captain over Israel. The word captain there is the top leader. We think of captain as a company grade rank. No, it's a, here the term is top guy. But when you get to 2 Samuel 7, it's one of the most important chapters in your Bible. You want to be very sensitive to this, because 2 Samuel 7 affects everything that follows. Not only in the scriptures, in the history of mankind. This is the divine confirmation of the throne in Israel. And this has more to do with than just Israel alone, because this will ultimately be the throne from which the entire planet Earth will be ruled. God there declares the perpetuity of the Davidic dynasty. Now, do you know anyone that is a direct descendant of David? Only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, the Davidic dynasty is declared through perpetuity. And something else is that the Davidic covenant is unconditional. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant being unconditional. The Davidic covenant also is unconditional. Very important point, because this has messianic implications. This is crucial not just because of the governance of the nation. It, it's critical because it leads to the whole, backstops the whole concept of the Messiah that started in Genesis chapter 3 and climaxes with the marriage supper of the Lamb and so forth in Revelation 19. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.